0: So good morning, beloved. Good morning. Uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 4 if you'd like to make your copy of Scripture ready. Luke chapter 4. Uh, while you're turning there, last week I made some comments about church attendance. Um, And I just want to revisit that for a moment and um, one, emphatically make clear that that it is okay to miss church on occasion. Like You shouldn't feel guilty for going on vacation or work, things like that. Um, But we do have to wrestle with this biblical command that that we are to gather together and not forsake gathering together and all these things. And so as I say those things, I want you to know, um, and, and this is part of a confession of the struggles in my heart, that you're not alone in that and just because I'm paid as part of my job to be here on Sunday mornings, my family's not immune from that. Um, It's probably no surprise at this point that I love hockey. I grew up playing hockey, that was my sport, Um, and my son, um, like, before he was born, it was my dream, like, he's gonna play hockey, and we're gonna play hockey together, it's gonna be awesome, all this stuff, and so you've heard me ridiculous numbers of times use examples from hockey and things like that, and today's no exception, but, you know. (laughs) What was difficult for us is that um, he has gone through five seasons of Learn to Play, all culminating in this moment where he is now at the age where he can officially join a team and play league hockey. And all of him looking forward to that, and really just all of me looking forward to that, um, we have arrived. And so I register him online, and it says, you know what, weekday practices, weekend games, and we've done this for five seasons. So we know the deal. After the learn-to-play sessions, then they start playing games on Saturday mornings. And so I register him. We have the evaluation skate. And at the end of the evaluation skate, Coaches are just kind of leaving, and I'm like, hey buddy, what did they say? I didn't hear them give any directions on what's next. And of course he's like, I don't know. <laughs> and so I I find one of the coaches like, oh yeah, there's gonna be a Jamboree next week, and we'll get teams, um, the roster's finalized and all this stuff, and then you'll you'll get a schedule. I'm like, oh, okay, and so we're getting close to the end of the week, and I'm like, okay, so Jamboree should be this coming weekend, like we're days away from that. So I'm emailing and calling and finally get a response back my questions were like, when is this jamboree? Because we, we kind of need to know when to be there. And when will practices be? Because that's gonna affect when we have home group. When are games gonna be? Just like, we need to know times and things like that. And I get the response that, well, practices will be Wednesday nights, and games are actually Sunday mornings at 8.30. <laughs> All of this coming to this point. And then to have to break my son's heart slash my heart that uh, no, you're not gonna be playing games, so um, we'll go to practices, and maybe when you get into another age group, age bracket, then games will be at a different time. Um, but that was hard for us, and so uh, we have the Jamboree this past Monday, where they have the tentative teams and see how they are so that it's not just like one team's gonna dominate all the others, and. So we're there and we're in the locker room and me and Leland, my son, are in the locker room alone. I'm getting him dressed and everything. Another dad comes in with his son and they start getting him dressed and so just us in that locker room, I look over, just trying to be friendly, like, hey, how are you doing, everything, you guys excited for the season? He's like, oh, yeah, I'm one of the coaches, it's going to be a good time, uh, you guys ready to start games? And I was like, well, actually, he's only going to be able to do the practices, just doesn't work out for us to be able to do the games. And like, without missing a beat, he's like, oh, you're a pastor, aren't you? I was like, well, yeah, <laughs> actually, I am. That's kind of critical to my job, to be available on Sunday mornings. And um, and the guy is like, "Oh, you know what? Like, actually having kids now, growing up, I'm realizing that I really need to plug back into a church." I'm like, "Oh, well, that's that's great to hear." And so, I start to have this gospel-centered conversation with him, just like as you're looking for a church, like just remember, like it's so important that you find one that really believes Scripture, that holds to the gospel. And so I'm I'm telling him all these things, and like I'm getting excited. Like I know this is this is this kind of sucks, buddy. <laughs> but like, what a beautiful moment here now. Or because of that decision, and because of this moment, now I can share this with this dad, and try to shepherd him through. Like, what's it going to look like to be in a good place with his family and a healthy church? And so we're over. um, This is this is not here. This is closest ice rink. And I'm like, do you live close by? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, well, actually, I know a great gospel-centered church nearby. It's actually just a few blocks from here, and it's it's pretty big. Um, And he's like, oh, is it this church? And he says the name. I was like, oh yeah. And he's like, oh, which we visited that one. And you wouldn't believe, like, and he like his total demeanor changes. He lights up and he's like, I actually met the pastor in the lobby, the first time we visited. That kind of stuff doesn't happen, so we've loved it. Uh, again, me confessing to you, huge check on my prideful heart in that moment. As I sit there and I think, you're in a locker room with exclusive access to a pastor who's trying to shepherd your soul in this moment. But you're excited that you met someone who has a quasi-celebrity status. And that's what made the deal for you. Like That's, that's what mattered. Like How ironic. The more important thing is that some individual gave you attention in a way that felt like it built you up. And it begs the question for me and for you today, what do we want from another person? What is it that we're actually after? Is our motive just to exploit another person for what we think we need or what we want? Or can we actually see the person? And I'm gonna spoil the ending for you right now of where we're going. God does not play this game. God does not play this game. And so here we are in Luke chapter four. Uh, we're gonna pick up where we left off last week. In verse 14, we're gonna start. Luke chapter four, verse 14. It says, Then Jesus returned to Galilee, and the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity. He was teaching in their synagogues, being praised by everyone. So Jesus here, um, Luke makes this repeatedly clear throughout his gospel. Luke is doing everything. He's operating in the power of the Spirit. And so in the Spirit, Jesus has come in the power of the Spirit. He's going now into a new region because remember, he was baptized in the Jordan. He crossed the Jordan. He's in the wilderness. He's tempted. And so now he has traveled up north again. He's in Galilee in this new region. This is back where he actually grew up. And as he's going, he's going synagogue to synagogue and he's teaching and people are amazed. They're praising him. And so he's launching this public teaching ministry in synagogues. Um, if you don't know what a synagogue is, that's okay, most of us don't. Uh, but a synagogue is like a local venue for religious studies and services. So um, the, the people of God, the Jews in Judaism, they had the temple in Jerusalem for much of their history, but you know they had these periods of exile where because of their disobedience, they're, they're not obeying the covenant and in spite of all these warnings the prophets give them, they would continue to walk away from God and part of the punishment and really in God's grace trying to correct them and really it's a picture of all of us, they were sent into exile. And so during one of these seasons of exile, the Babylonian exile, the people of God lost the temple and so to still study and praise God and so forth, knowing that they could not go to the temple as a central place of focused worship, they started to develop these synagogues, like local houses of worship, And so you would go to the synagogue on Sabbath and there they would do things like they would all quote the Shema together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And they would have prayers. They would have a reading from the prophets. They would have a reading from the law. One of the men of the community, as long as there was a certain number of other men present, would stand up and then teach on one of the passages read. They would have a benediction. And so these are kind of, it's like a worship service but that would happen at a local venue called a synagogue. In early Christianity, much of uh, where people would gather as churches were synagogues. And so um, this, this is where Jesus is coming up, this is a natural place for him to get up and to preach or to teach. And so Jesus has been doing that, going throughout Galilee, and now look what happens in verse 16. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. So this is Jesus' hometown. Now I want you to think for a moment. What is it like for you to go home? When you go to your hometown, is there not typically a mixture of feelings? of Like, these people know me when I did that. <laughs> Or, man, these people love me. Like It's usually so like all over the place, but we we come with that mixture, this grab bag of emotions when we go home. And so here is Jesus in his hometown. He's been going throughout Galilee. Now he's in his hometown where he grew up. And he gets in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stands up to read. Verse 17, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it is written, The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and set free the oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. So Jesus here is reading Um, What we know, if you turn back in your copy of Scripture into the Old Testament, this is what we know as Isaiah chapter 61, uh, verses one and two, and then also back a little bit further in chapter 58, verse six. And so Jesus reading this selection that he chose clearly, he's looking and he finds this. He specifically targets this passage to then read publicly in the synagogue. And so the anticipation is building. As Jesus has a reputation, he's been traveling around teaching in the synagogues throughout this region. And now, clearly, culturally, would probably look the part of a rabbi. He stands to do the reading. He makes his selection and then he sits down and in the tradition of the day, the rabbi would sit to teach. And so all eyes are locked on Jesus. What's he gonna say? Why did he choose that passage? What's this guy about to say to us? And all the things that we've heard about him. How is this going to go? Look at verse 21. He began by saying to them, today as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. (laughs) As you listen today, this scripture has been fulfilled. So why did he choose that passage? He's saying that what that passage says and promised was to come, today in your hearing, it has come about That is what he is saying. So Jesus is claiming the fulfillment of all the messianic hope of Isaiah 61. This is the moment, this is the culmination of everything the Jews are longing for and looking forward to because they're still in a form of exile. The Roman Empire is occupying their land. They have not had their own true freedom in centuries. It's been a long time. They've been oppressed by group after group of power coming in and usurping more power and then vying for more power. And so they're constantly seated with the knowledge. like, we're the people of God. You remember when David was on the throne? (laughs) Like no one else. And yet here we are as the people of God constantly harassed and taken advantage of by this group and that group and this group and that group. And we know the promises. There's a Messiah who's to come. There's someone who's going to free us. There's someone who's going to restore the throne. And Jesus references one of the most well-known passages of this messianic hope, reads it and says, it's been done today in your own hearing. And so you've got to ask, how will they respond to such a claim as this? Like this is a wild claim, Jesus. How are they going to respond to this? Verse 22 they were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came out of his mouth. Yet, they said, isn't this Joseph's son? Remember, he's in his hometown. Like, We know the guy who raised him. Remember Joseph? Remember Mary? Remember those quirky other kids? Like, wait, wait, wait a second. You're making this claim? Boy, we saw you in diapers. We what are you claiming? And so you have this weird mixture to where some of them they speak, they think highly of him, speaking well. They're amazed by the gracious words coming out of his mouth and yet they're also doubting and they're challenging him. And so we keep going, verse 23. Then he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Doctor, heal yourself. What we've heard that took place in Capernaum, do here in your hometown also. He also said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But I say to you, there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's days when the sky was shut up for three years and six months while a great famine came over all the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them except a widow at Zarephath and Sidon. And in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many in Israel who had leprosy and yet not one of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged They got up, drove him out of town and brought him to the edge of the hill that their town was built on intending to hurl him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. What a turn. What a turn it takes that Jesus in his hometown gets up, reads this passage, preaches on it, says it's fulfilled now in your hearing. He's making this claim about himself that he is the messianic hope. He is the Messiah. He has come to accomplish all of this. And some of them are amazed, like, man, wow, gracious words. Wait, this is Joseph's boy? And Jesus, reading their thoughts as the true prophet, like, I know what you're thinking. You'd quote this proverb at me. Doctor, heal yourself. And you think about that. Do you want a doctor who can't take care of his own ailments? Hey, what we've heard you doing in Capernaum, why don't you do that here? What's, what's the thing? You won't do that in your own hometown, Jesus? They're challenging him, they're, they're doubting. They're pressing on him. And Jesus turns it around, like, okay, you know your history, right? You've read the scriptures? You remember Elijah? There's this time when there's this long, long famine, and Elijah is hungry, and he goes to the house of this widow. This old lady and her son are there, and she's got just enough oil, she can make one more piece of bread. One more little cake. And in kindness, she's like, we'll make it, and we'll share it. And yet, Elijah, in the power of God, makes it to where that little amount of food she has never runs dry throughout the famine. And she's like, You remember that? She wasn't even a Jew. <laughs> and all these other Jewish widows starving to death, but Elijah didn't go to them, just the one. Or Elisha, his successor. You know how many lepers were in Israel during his day? Who knows? A lot of them. But you know, Elisha healed one of them. Who's Naaman. He wasn't even a Jew either. As you just imagine this, is like, oh, <laughs> this hurts. He's making this point that not everyone gets this kind of blessing from God. And in fact, sometimes it's not even the people of God. And here you are saying, like, you want me to prove myself here at home? And they're enraged, they're so mad. They drive him out of the synagogue, they push him up a hill, and there's a cliff there. And they're ready to throw Jesus off the cliff. And we don't know if this is miraculous, my mind tends to go with this must have been some kind of miraculous event, but Jesus just walks through the crowd. It's like, all right, I'm out. And he walks away, going on his own way. This is a wild, wild turn of events. This happens because they wanted what happened in Capernaum to happen here. They wanted Jesus to prove himself by giving them the relief and the blessing that they wanted, what they thought they needed most. But here's the rub. We often don't even know what we need. Have you found that to be true? Sometimes you want something so bad and then you get it and you realize, that was not good for me. (laughs) Or sometimes you want something so bad and you receive something else and in the end you're like, wow, thank you, God. I wanted that, but you knew I needed this. But We often don't even know what we truly need. I consider Jesus' claim from reading this passage in Isaiah that the year of the Lord's favor is here. And so this would be a reference to the year of Jubilee. And so the seventh, seventh year, so the 49th year, and according to Deuteronomic law, is the year of Jubilee. And so this is a year of rest, like no work, let's just chill. And so anyone who has a debt, it's freed, it's forgiven. And so everybody gets this kind of like beautiful reset. Some of you in the house are like, can we have that again? (laughs) Like debt-free, that'd be awesome. And so the year of Jubilee, the seventh, seventh year. And Jesus is saying, this is the ultimate seventh, seventh year. This is the true year of the Lord's favor. This is final rest has come. Rest. I think every human throughout history has known we need to rest. And it's so hard to just rest. Um, John Mark Comer, as a well-known former pastor and author, he he writes extensively about this idea of rest. Um, But he has three kind of just cataclysmic events that he's identified in in recent, somewhat recent history that have really shaped what rest looks like in the West. Um, And he points to things like in the 13th century that public clock towers came about. For now everyone in the, in the vicinity can see, oh, that's what time it is. Oh, well, <laughs> we gotta hold to that. And so there's this new pressure now of like, well, we said by this time, like, oh, the clock is literally ticking. And so this collective effect on us that, oh, we're bound by this time. And he points to things like in 1879, Edison invented the light bulb. Oh, light? It's getting dark outside? get out the candles, or you know what, flip the switch. Instant light, so much brighter. And now I can continue to do all these things that I couldn't do when it was dark. Or 2007, the introduction of the iPhone. As the iPhone is this web-enabled device that's in all of our pockets. And so if you look at this, in the early 20th century, futurists were looking at just the exponential rate of all these inventions that are labor-saving devices. And so you think, like, you wanna take a hot bath before the invention of the hot water heater and all these things like electricity, what would it take to do that? You gotta go get buckets of water, you gotta make a fire, heat up stones you're gonna drop in there, however it is, that's gonna take a lot of time, whereas now, open the tap, hot water. As so you have invention after invention after invention of these things that everybody's looking at and thinking like, this is gonna save us so much time. And all these futurists in the early 20th century are saying like, within decades, Americans are going to work less than 20 hours a week. This is going to be amazing. And here we are. We now, with all of what technology has afforded us, sleep less than ever. Before the invention of the light bulb, we slept on average about 11 hours a night. It's almost cut in half. The amount of time that we work, and leisure time, work skyrockets, leisure time plummets. So what is this? We look at these gadgets and things and we think, oh, we need that, I want that. Rest, and yet it does the opposite. And here's Nazareth, I know what I want, I know what I need, and here's Jesus saying, no you don't, you don't even know what you want or need. Jesus' hometown seems to suffer the same issue as us that we tend to view God like he's a vending machine. It's it's like this gumball machine here. You go up to a vending machine and you have to pay a token amount. So you put in what's due and it gives you what you want. That's the way we view God so often. That if I just come to him, he's always there. He's reliable, he's just always there. And if I come to him and I give him just this this small amount, you know. He just, he just asked this of me. Then he's gonna give me exactly what I want. Is that the way that you pray? That God's just this old vending machine, just ready and waiting. You just come give just your token amount, and he's gonna give you what you want. Isn't that what Nazareth is doing? God has shown up in their midst, and instead of celebrating, you grew up here. What amazing things have you done and are you going to do? We want you to do what we heard you did over there. We want this from you. We want this from you. That's heresy. We cannot view God like a vending machine. He's not a vending machine. In fact, this is pathetic. If you're God can be so easily exploited and manipulated. He is no God. That is not God. God is Jesus who said things like, this is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from the Father. Push him up a hill, and see if you can throw him off a cliff and he walks away, going on his own way. He will lay down his life, but he does it on his own, on his own terms. And in fact, the whole picture of what is happening and Jesus being rejected in his hometown, rejected in Nazareth, is a picture of the gospel. That this is our salvation. This is how Isaiah 61 actually comes about. That he would set free the oppressed because we are oppressed in our sin the blind would receive sight, that we have been blinded by our sin and don't even know that we're dead. And yet he comes and gives us sight, opens our eyes to see the beauty, the grandeur, the majesty of God. This is Jesus, God who has come in love for us. All of the promises of Isaiah 61 are fulfilled in him, but it's not by this hometown saying, we want this from you. It's by him saying, no, I've come to give you the greatest gift. It is me. He is the greatest gift. He has come for us. But we cannot exploit and manipulate him. He is like no other. And so it won't be on our terms. All of our hope and how Jesus would truly do this is in his ultimate rejection and death, it is on his terms. And he laid down his life because he loves you. He wants you to enjoy him, not just things you can get from him, but he wants you to enjoy him. He wants you to know him. As a church, as we conclude, I just wanna ask if you see the tragedy in this. Do you see the tragedy in Jesus walking away because they just want something from him? Have so you just lost the greatest gift, God himself? Because you are more concerned about getting what you want from him when he is everything we could ever want or need. See the greatest gift of God is himself, and so bottom line, don't desire things from God more than you desire God himself. He, he loves you, he came to be rejected, just like he was in Nazareth, but ultimately on a cross, where he would die the death that you and I deserve, and he would call us to repent, to turn from our sin and turn towards him, saying, follow me, and he would lead us in the path of life, This is our freedom, this is our salvation, to know and love and be loved and known by Jesus, the one who has come. So let's follow him faithfully. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you for your great love. Thank you that you endured hardships, Jesus, like going to your hometown and being mocked and them even attempting to kill you prematurely. But thank you, God, that you are faithful. Um, Your covenantal love does not change. You are steadfast. You're gracious, you're compassionate, you're slow to anger, so we thank you for that. If it was me, I would've just put an end to it right then and there. But you didn't, because you see through to the end. And you're after so much more, you're after us. So God, would you move spirit in us, convict us, change our hearts, help us to see you for who you are, to love you more, to obey you, to come to you rightly. Thank you, and I pray all this in Jesus' name.